Good morning, new community. Uh, well, I'm Sandra Van Opstel. I am family, a part of this church, but maybe the reason sometimes people may think I'm a guest is because I'm one of the missionaries of the church, so I, sometimes I disappear for months at a time uh, and then come back. And so I'm glad to be here for the summer because we're going to be running the Chicago Urban Program, so I will stay put at least for a couple months. And uh, glad to be here with you this morning looking at uh, the scripture and really seeking out what God's trying to say through the passages this morning. Um, For those of you who do know me and have seen me and have spent some time with me, you know that I love a good story. I mean, I love a good story. I love hearing stories. I love telling stories. I'm a sucker for a good story. And so... um, one of the ways that we can encounter stories is through, is, uh, through you know, just sitting around chatting and stuff like that. And in my family, we have that, uh, that uh, habit of kind of sitting down for breakfast at like, you know, 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning and starting breakfast and telling stories and talking and talking and talking. And pretty soon it's like lunchtime and someone has to get up and start preparing lunch because we're still at the table. And so lunch gets prepared and lunch gets served, but we are still talking. I mean, we're telling stories and, oh, wait, I have something to tell you. And, oh, wait, I have something to tell you. And we keep talking. And for those of you that have ever met a Van Opstel, you know that we love to tell some stories. And so I am a sucker for stories. The other day, my husband and I were watching, um, were watching a movie. And when I watch a movie, I feel like I am inside of that thing. You know, it's like the, the, the movie goes on and I'm like, I'm feeling it. I'm there. I'm, and so we saw the movie The Duchess. Have any of you seen that? None of you. Okay, don't see it. It will make you mad. And I was watching the movie with Carl. I was so mad. I was like watching the movie and I was angry and I was yelling at the television. And, and then I got up and I walked to the bathroom and I like, you know, poured a glass of water in the kitchen and came back. And then, you know, I was so upset. I couldn't even watch it. And then we kept watching the movie and then I would be like, oh, I can't even listen to the scene. I don't even know. I just, and I fast forward the scene. And then, so I'm skipping parts of the movie. But I, and then he says, um, you know, maybe you need to have a timeout. <laughs> You know, like maybe you just need a time out, honey. And so he, he turns, he pauses the, tel- the movie and he says, you know, do you just, do you want to just not watch it? I mean, we don't have to watch it. You know, we could watch the other one or, you know, because I think you're kind of like really emotional and into this movie and, and I know how you are and, you know, and so I was like, no, I have to finish the movie now because they're, they're, you know, it's injustice and I have to see how it ends. It has to resolve, you know. And so we're watching this movie and my husband's like, oh my gosh, she's in the story. I love a good story. And that's one of the reasons that I love the book of Acts. You all, it is a good story. I mean, it is one of the, it's a gripping, compelling, exciting, adventurous story of God's mission moving forward in the world, of how God is on a mission and how he's accomplishing things in ways that we could never have imagined. And this week when I was preparing for this sermon, at one point I thought Carl was going to give me a timeout because I was too into the passage, too excited, too kind of like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if you were Peter or whatever? He's like, I don't care anymore, honey. You know, like, you need a time out from the book of Acts. Let's take a walk. Let's, you know, get an ice cream. Let's do something else. Because the story pulls you in. Now, sometimes it takes a little bit of historical helps, you know, pull out a commentary here and there, because some of the things that are happening, honestly, we can't really get in as deep as we want to if we don't understand the context of what's happening. So you may need some help along the way in this story, but the bottom line is that it is awesome. 
And so I am glad that it will probably take us two years to get through the book of Acts because I am enjoying digging deep and seeing that God is so different than we sometimes imagine him to be and that his mission is sometimes so much more glorious than we could ever imagine. And not only is this book of Acts full of suspense and intrigue, but it also helps us as Christians understand our own legacy. It's not just a book that's full of suspense and intrigue and great characters. It's a book that helps us understand where we came from, where our faith came from, and how we became a part of God's story. How this small, marginalized group of just over 100 people became a worldwide force that changed the landscape of how the world would be. This is the story of Acts. And, you know, we like stories not, because, not only because they entertain us or because we like to feel things and get in the story. We like stories because they inspire us. We like to watch movies and hear people's stories because it inspires us to be different and to change. And so the book of Acts was also written for the church so that the early church and all the generations that would follow would see that God is on a mission And that God is doing things and God is a God who is able to fulfill those things. And so the book of Acts ought to not just entertain us, although it does. It should also inspire us to see who God is and to want to live differently. So we get to Acts chapter 10. And so far in Acts, the gospel has been advancing. Yes, we've seen the gospel going out. We've seen that Jews have become believers. We've seen that Samaritans have come to faith. We've seen that even a devout Ethiopian has come to know who Jesus is. And right now, in the book of Acts, we encounter the story, starting last week and this week in Acts Acts chapters 10 and 11, we encounter the story of Cornelius and Peter. And the story of Peter and Cornelius hinges directly in the middle and comes right before the launch of the mission to the Gentiles that comes through Paul. And so after we see the spread of the church in Jerusalem and kind of going out to Samaria and the neighborhoods, all of a sudden we have this story. And after this story, God's mission goes out to all the Gentiles. Gentile churches are established and awesome things happen. And here is where we meet Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. So I'm going to read it for you guys. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrives, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called them together, had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I'm only a man. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him. But, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and it was good of you to come. Now we are here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then, Peter began to speak. 
I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, and how he went around doing good and dealing or sorry, and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses who God had chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even to the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them a few days. This story is incredible. And for us just to take a moment to enter into what God is doing here and to understand it is a privilege. And so I hope you guys will enter in with me and see that God has something he he wants to say to us this morning from this passage. First off, we find from the passage that very clearly God accepts all who believe in him. Very clearly the passage states that God accepts all who believe in him. Now we know and have to know that God is doing something in Cornelius. God is doing something in Cornelius' life because he's... tells a story and he says, you know, I was sitting there and I was praying all of a sudden this angel showed up and he begins to give us a a, a testimony of what God is doing in his life. So God is at work. We also know this because we have this, you know, encounter with Cornelius and Peter um, in the beginning when Peter enters his house. And it's kind of like, you know, one of those you know, Peter walks in and all of a sudden Cornelius just drops to his hands and knees and and begins to just worship him. And how many of you have gone into someone's house and had that happen to you? Yeah, no, me neither. But you think to yourself, well, Cornelius must have been like, you know, Peter must have been like a really great guy or what's the deal? But there's a sense from the passage that even with Cornelius's actions, he was waiting for Peter. He was expecting for God to do something. He was expecting to hear something. He was expecting and excited. So when Peter arrived to his house, he said, thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. And the passage continues, right? He says, oh, let me tell you the story. I was having this vision. This angel came. And all of a sudden, he says at the end, now we are all sitting here listening, waiting to hear what the Lord, waiting to listen to and receive what the Lord has commanded all for you, for you to tell us. Now, I wish that I had that effect on people, but I don't. Like when I show up at small group or to a student appointment or, you know, to me, it's not like people are like, oh, Sandra, okay, first, I'm so glad you're here. I am now waiting to receive all that the Lord has commanded for you to tell me. No, some of you have, where are my students? You know, that's not true. It's like, oh, here comes Sandra. So 
clearly Peter was at work, or sorry, God was at work in the life of Cornelius. Because people don't have that effect on other people, no matter how charming we are or how smart we are. Cornelius was waiting. God had met him and he was waiting to hear something. At this point, the passage says in verse 34 um, that Peter began to speak. And so he began his sermon and he began to preach. Um, And the Greek that's used when Peter launches his sermon here is literally Peter opens his mouth. And the author, Luke, chose to use that word or that that, uh, phrase there to communicate to us that something important was going to happen. Something weighty was going to happen because Peter opened his mouth and said, and then he gave the words, right? So there's something significant that's about to happen here, something significant that Peter's about to say. And the passage says, Peter opened his mouth. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Peter's preaching of the gospel begins with something the Gentiles had to hear from Peter. It begins with some, a truth about God that the Gentiles had to hear from Peter. The truth that wasn't communicated by the way that the Jews treated the Gentiles or what their experience had been so far. He needed to hear Peter say, I now know that God does not show favoritism. And so Cornelius was waiting and God was at work in him. And God was clearly at work through the sermon that Peter gave. And with the words that he spoke to Cornelius, I now know that God accepts men from every nation. He, with those words, sweeps away the racism and the prejudice and all the baggage that the people in Cornelius' house would have been experiencing and would have been feeling and maybe even would have been wondering. And God speaks through Peter. He goes on to say, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name, not through ritual rites, not through rules, not through outward acts, but through his name. And we see a picture of a God who goes after those who are seen as unvaluable. We see a picture of a God who goes after those who seem unclean to others. A God who does not show value for one group over another, for one race over another, for one people group or nation over another, but a God who receives and accepts all. When Peter finishes preaching, at the end of his sermon, all of a sudden the passage says that the Holy Spirit falls on the people. And they're astonished. The Holy Spirit falls and they begin to praise God and speak in tongues. Now, if I was Peter, I'm sorry. Have any of you ever gotten the opportunity to share your faith with someone else? Like talk about Jesus with someone else. It's the most exciting thing you could ever do. And the best part about the whole thing is when you get to the end and you go, and Jesus is this, and this is how you in the end, and you tell the person, you have an opportunity to be in relationship with Jesus. Would you like to follow him? This is the best part of the sermon. Peter doesn't even get there. So if I was Peter, I would be like, God, why are you stealing that from me? I like that part, you know? I wanted to make the invitation. I wanted to ask them. 
But no, the passage says, and we'll see clearly why later, that the Holy Spirit falls on the people and they begin to praise God and speak in tongues and speak of God's wonders. And Peter's friends were astonished, the passage says, that the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Even on the Gentiles. We worship a God who does not play favorites. We worship and serve a God who does not play favorites. And this passage through the conversion of Cornelius and his family members clearly shows us, through the, through the sermon that Peter gives in this passage, it clearly shows us that we serve a God who does not play favorites. He was at work even in the Gentiles. Now how many of you know that when God wants to get your attention, he will get it? Yes? Don't look scared. When God wants to get your attention, he will get it. Uh, we all know that, right? We could run from him. We could hide from him. We can pretend we're not listening. But if God wants to say something to you, he is going to tell you. And at this point in time, Peter has something he needs to learn. Peter had to learn something. And we're going to find out that God schools him. He teaches Peter. So let's take a look at what Peter needed to learn. You know, the passage says that, uh, states to, or shows us that Peter was a good Jew. He himself told God in the vision that, we, that uh, Pastor Michael preached on last week. He told God in the vision, oh God, you know, you know, I could never eat anything that's unclean or, you know, uh, not supposed to be like the way that you told us to do. You know, God clearly trying to cl- communicate to God, I'm a good Jew. I don't do those kinds of things. I don't eat those kinds of things. I would never do that. We know from the passage that Peter was a good Jew. Now we need to learn something about the Jews and the Gentiles. It's important to understand the depth of this passage and what is being communicated when Peter opened his mouth. God had given the Jews originally the law. He had originally given the Jews the law to keep them holy, to keep them separate, to keep them set apart for God so that they would live in a way that reflected to the rest of the world around them, we belong to God. So they would live in a way that reflected to the rest of the world around them who their God was and what he was about. And the promise that was made to Abraham and to the people of God were that they would be blessed to be a blessing. And so God gave them the law. The problem was that later on, as the Jews began, continued to journey, they made all these other laws up. And so the rabbinic laws came and a bunch of other laws that kind of didn't just tell them how to live for God, but told them exactly how to separate themselves from the people that would keep them from living for God. So they continued to separate themselves and separate themselves and make these special laws. So you'd find things like on the wall of a temple, you know, like you'd go into the, the temple to, where the Jews worshipped and in their, in their places of worship, you would find inscriptions that say, Gentiles enter on pain of death. In their places of worship, Gentile enter on pain of death. Now, we've never had anything like that in our history, in our places of worship, where we put up signs to exclude certain people based off of what communities they come from or what color they happen to be. This was a problem in the church. It did not reflect God's heart. It did not reflect the original intent of the law. And at this point in time, the Jews had created a system to keep themselves so far from people, so separated from people, that instead of just being separated, they were alienated. Instead of just separating others, they alienated others. 
They didn't want to be touched by Gentiles. They didn't want the Gentile shadow to touch them. They considered Gentiles to be not even human, kind of like dogs or partially human. And we've never done that either. But not allowed to share a meal at a table together. We get a feel for what this might have been like. Because it wasn't too long ago that this is the kind of stuff that our own places of worship participated in. In Divided by Faith, uh, sociologist Michael Emerson talks about something called the homogeneous unit principle. It states that people like to become Christians without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers. This principle states an undeniable fact that human beings do build barriers around their own societies. People like to become Christians without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers. And so out of this homogeneous unit principle, they had a whole system and plan for church growth, which I'll get to in a minute. But um, no, let me talk about it now. They actually used that principle to say, you know, if your church wants to grow, if you guys really want to reach your community, if you really want to do it, you really want to grow, you ought to reach people who are only like you because that's how it happens. With complete disregard to the fact that you're separating yourself and therefore alienating yourself from other people. Because people like to become Christians with people who are like them. He goes on to argue that having no contact with people from different communities actually perpetuates our racism and stereotypes. In Divided by Faith, pages 125 to 132, if you want to check it out. It's incredible. It's incredible. How those things affect us. That because we hear about those other Gentiles who happen to be over there and we don't experience community with them and we don't know their customs, we don't know, like, what, would they, what might they eat? I mean, what do those people eat? You know? But let me tell you a story since I have a minute. My, my mother, who's from Colombia, and she's here today, she used to get so mad because people used to ask, like, what kind of dishes do you guys eat? You know, like, what do you, what do you eat in Colombia? Like, what, what do those people eat? You know, she would be asked this all the time by Americans, you know. And so one time she was out with her boyfriend somewhere here in the city of Chicago, and somebody said to her at a really fancy banquet, like, oh, well, you know, Olga, like, what kind of dishes, what kind of dishes do you have? You know, what kind of dishes do you have? She said, dishes? This is a plate? We have plates? We have forks? We have knives? You know, we have spoons? We have cups? That's what kind of dishes we have? She, like, went off on them, you know, because she had, she had, was tired She was tired of people perpetuating and putting on her stereotypes. I mean, who knows what Colombians eat for Pete's sake? I mean, what do those people who, what do they eat, you know? But we live in a society that causes us to separate ourselves and alienate ourselves from other people. Therefore, in that distance, Michael Emmer says that we perpetuate racism. And that the church perpetuates racism. Often Christians in the past have not wanted to break barriers of class or race because it was inconvenient to do so. In our own evangelistic efforts, even within our country and within the world, as you study the history of the church, even in our own evangelistic efforts, it was easier for us to help people know Jesus but not let them know that Jesus set them free so that we could gain economic and social status. We abuse people in the name of the gospel and keep them other and keep them alienated. And this is the kind of situation that Peter was in. 
This is the kind, the depth of the kind of separation and alienation and hatred and kind of disgust that the Jews had for the Gentiles. They thought they were nasty people. And all of a sudden, God asked Peter to go to his house. What do you think Peter's thinking? He's like, oh God, you don't know. I'm the pastor of this mega church in Jerusalem. It's like 10,000 people. You know, like I couldn't possibly me go to the house of a Gentile. Like how would that look? What would people say? This is the context that Peter is in. When he goes to his house, this is the context. Sometimes I think when we read the scriptures, because we don't know the historical context, we're like, oh, then Peter came, they became friends, and the gospel went out. No! It was hard. It was hard. And it was unheard of. And it was revolutionary. And the invitation that God made to Peter was not an easy one. But Peter had to learn something. And God was committed to teaching him something. So God schools him. And how does God do that? In order to understand the work that God does in Peter, you actually have to start in chapter 9. Because at the end end of chapter 9, there's a line that tells us that God had already been at work in the life of Peter. There's this awesome scene where there's like people being healed and somebody being raised from the dead, and it's awesome. At the end of chapter chapter 9, there's this one line that says, where'd it go? Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. When we read this in our Bible study and community group, we're like, what the heck does that have to do with anything? Like, there's this awesome healing and this rising up from the dead. And, and, then, and then Peter stayed there and hung out with Simon the tanner. Okay, so it seems out of place, but what we see there is that God was already at work in the life of Peter because he had situated and placed him in the house of a person who had an unclean job. So he wasn't an unclean person like Cornelius was. He just had an unclean job. So God started a work in Peter's life. Why don't you go to the stay at the house of a person with an unclean job? God, what are people going to say to him? I don't know. All right. And you can see from that move that Peter made that his later willingness to change was fueled by his willingness to already be in places that were uncomfortable for him. He stayed with the house, at the house with a tanner. And then God kept working on Peter, and he gave him a vision. And he spoke to Peter. And after he spoke to Peter, some Gentiles came to his house. And after those Gentiles came to his house, God invited him to go to the house of Gentiles. The invitation from Cornelius, or to Cornelius, that God gave him was, was clear the link that he, to the vision that he had given him because food was directly linked with spending time with people and joining with people. And so Peter had a sense, I think. He was kind of like, I wonder what God is up to. Have you guys ever had that experience in life where like you do something, you're like, oh, I wonder if God's gonna like bring this back at me. I wonder if he's like gonna remind me of this summer I spent in Cairo. I wonder if he's going to bring out this trip to the Dominican Republic. Or I wonder if that relationship and that conflict that I had is ever going to come back to teach me something again. God was committed to teaching Peter and in the process of teaching him. See, Peter had offered hospitality to Cornelius' men. If you, if you see in the passage, after the vision, 
Cornelius's friends went to Peter uh, and Simon the Tanner's house. So they came in. But it wasn't like a big deal, actually, for Jews to have Gentiles in their homes. Because when you have someone in your home, you can control things. When you have someone in your home, you can tell them, oh, like, this is what we're eating. And, oh, could you leave your shoes at the door? And, oh, could you sit here? And, like, so... Peter had had them over, but having people over your house for the Jews is something completely different than going into the house of a Gentile. It wasn't odd for him to have Cornelius' friends over. Maybe he felt a little uncomfortable, but it wasn't against the law. Now God was saying, go and do something that will freak people out. Be a little bit more uncomfortable, Peter. And Peter enters the house, verse 25 says. And in verse 28... He says the best hello. He says, uh, you know it's illegal for me to be here. It kind of reminds me of um, like, you, like a girl at a bar who like some guy t- comes to talk to her and she's like, oh, you know, I don't, you don't usually come to places like this. That's not like my thing. You know, I like, don't usually hang out in bars or like, you know, if you're ever caught in a situation where you're in some place and you're like, oh, I don't usually like come to, I don't really like this group or this team. I'm just here with a friend, you know, I'm just here with a friend. So Peter's introduction to, into, into Cornelius' house, it kind of, it was weird. It's like awkward. It's a little awkward. So we have the awkward moment where Cornelius is like, whoa, yeah, thank you for coming. Peter's like, hey, I'm just the man. Stand up. Hey, stand up, you know? And then we have Peter going, uh, next words out of his mouth. Oh, I just want you to know it's illegal for me to be here. I don't, I don't usually do this. Like, I don't usually do this. Um, you guys, but you guys aren't as bad as, as people say you are. What? You know, hello, thanks for welcoming me into your home would have been good enough. But no, Peter leaves with this. And you have to think to yourself, he must have been nervous or something. I have no idea. Or like excusing himself. But here he was excusing his sin to the people that he, and offending the people he, that were inviting him over. So this moment was highly awkward. And you have to think to yourself, was he just rude? Or was he nervous? Did he not know what to say? Did he not know how to act? I'm going to extend Peter a little bit of grace here and say that he just, th- he was beside himself. You know, kind of like, okay, the Tanner's house and the vision, and now here I am. Mm-hmm. And he was just a little nervous. I've had that experience before. Have you ever gone to the home of someone else or to a community that's different than you or to a barbecue of a family friend that might be different than you and you wonder to yourself, like, am I going to say something dumb like within the first five seconds? I wonder that all the time because of the places that God brings me to. And one summer I had that every single day for six weeks long, and that's the summer that we spent in Cairo in the garbage village outside of Cairo, Egypt. And every time someone invited us to their homes, we prayed on the way, oh God, please help this food digest well. Oh God, please help them serve us stuff that we can tell what it is. Oh God, please be with us. And how- These were people that collected garbage and had garbage in their homes and the fish were carried in the same cart as the garbage, right Andy Kim? And you wondered, is that fish coming for lunch? Yes, it is. And every day we wondered to ourselves, God, wouldn't it be easier if we just like had them over to our place? But God's invitation that summer for us was to enter people's homes, to go to people on their turf, to allow people to serve us and to set the environment that they want to give us, not the environment that we wanted to control ourselves. So for Peter, this was very hard. He could not control what he was going to eat or what they were going to do or what the environment was going to be like. Peter was kind of like, huh? 
Hi. And that's often how we feel when we're in situations like that. We may indeed have a desire to be in cross-cultural relationships, but we'd rather do that on our college campus where it feels safe and sterile for us, neutral, than we would on the west side of Chicago where we might not know how to act or what to do or how to behave. But these relationships allow us to hear the hurt and the truth and the abuse that comes and that has come to these people. Maybe even that has come at the expense or by the hands of people that are connected to us. For Cornelius, when he invited Peter over, he knew that Peter didn't think much of him or that the community that he came from didn't think much of him. So I wonder what the rest of the conversation was like between them. What did Peter hear from Cornelius's lips? Was Cornelius like in shock and telling Peter, I never expected you to come here because you know typically Jews don't really. And all of a sudden Cornelius began to tell Peter all the things that people had done to him. So when we're in relationships like that, it allows us to hear the hurt and abuse that has been caused and sometimes from communities that are our very own. Many of us in this church actually work across racial and socioeconomic lines. Many of us have jobs in the city and work with people and groups and communities that are nothing like us racially or socioeconomically. And I know that you have made those decisions at a huge cost to yourself and your families. But if all you ever do is go to work and help people, go to work and serve people, go to work and give to people, and you never ever connect or relate to them as a human being who is equal to you, then you will miss out on the relationships that God has for you and the types of relationship that God calls us into his kingdom. It is so easy to be in relationship with people who are different than you by class or race or other distinctions and serve them and help them and feel great about yourself, that you're contributing to something while all the while not really seeing them as an equal or human. So those of us that have given our vocations, including myself, to working among people who are different than us. My charge and my challenge is that we do so with the utmost humility and expectancy that God is going to teach us and grow us through them. We worship a God who doesn't play favorites. And we see that in the life of Peter, God wants him to get it. God wants to bring him along from the Tanner's house to the vision to Cornelius' house to preaching the gospel to even baptizing them. God wants to bring us along in that vision. We serve a God and worship a God who does not play favorites. So why do we? Why do we? Have you embraced the truth that God does not show favoritism? Are you, are you living in a way that's prophetic to the world around you that absolutely plays favorites? Is the way that you live show the people around you, I serve a God who, has, who doesn't play favorites? And you can tell because of the relationships that I have. So I'm going to give you guys an exercise to do. I want you to close your eyes for about 15 seconds and I want you to think about the last six months. I want you to think about the last six months of your life and I want to ask... When was the last time that Cornelius and his friends were sitting at your table? When was the last time that Cornelius and your friends and his friends were sitting at your table? Not just serving them, 
not just passing them by on the street, saying hey, but sitting down and connecting, sharing life together. The reason I want to give grace to Peter in this passage, (laughs) and I want to give grace to you guys, is because that's hard. And so I can understand Peter's awkward moment, (laughs) had many of those, and I can understand Peter's hesitancy as a leader and as a person maybe whose eyes are all on you, that people are watching what he's doing. I can appreciate that. And I can appreciate, it. I can appreciate saying the wrong things and doing the wrong things when people invite me over to their house. Because it's hard stuff. You know, I thought, I'm the Chicago Urban Program Director. I'm like an urban guru. That's like my job. I get paid for that. I should really know how to make relationships in this community really well. And so, I, I, you know... I, we moved into an apartment on Palmer. We, made rela- we built relationships with people. We had great times there. It was awesome. People were different racially and socioeconomically than us. We got schooled in that apartment. And I learned so much. And when we moved to the house that we just bought, I was like, oh, yes, Latinos. I'm going to be around Latinos. I'm going to be just like them. And guess what? I was nothing like them. My 20-some years in the suburbs had clearly taught me that life was supposed to be different. And so I began to experience a little bit of uh, tension and awkwardness um, as I related to my neighbors. And the whole time praying, like, God, how can we reach out to them? How can we, like, love them? How can we talk to them? How can we, like, I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that. But the reality is that God is calling us to live lives that are prophetic, with our relationships, and with the things that we do. Because these relationships aren't just, they fill in the stats for us, let's say that. They give us the passion and understanding to confront issues of injustice and racism and differences in our lives. They provide the opportunity even to confront our very own racism. Because you don't know what you think about people who are like you until you're in community, or who are not like you until you're in community with them. Let me say that again. You don't know what you think about people who are not like you until you're in community with them. It is the one thing to have a Latino friend or a black friend or a poor friend or a homeless friend than to be in a situation where you are entering into their community and saying, hi, I'm here to live alongside of you, to share your burdens, to know your needs, to understand your ways. I'm here to share life with you. That will bring up all sorts of mess for you. It has for me. And every time we do the Chicago Urban Program, I spill all that mess out to my students. I don't have time today, and this is on podcast. So the things that I have learned living alongside of people who are different than me about myself, about my very own thoughts, about my very own heart, And every week when we do the urban program during spring break, I say, I am about to offend everybody in this room by the end of this talk, okay? Will you extend me some grace? And then I tell them everything that I've learned over the last 10 years about working with and serving alongside and living with people who are different than me. So these relationships are critical. We worship a God who doesn't play favorites, and God wants us to get it, and he brings us along on a journey to understand. So my question is, what are you doing How are you changing? Last week, Pastor Washington brought up the question to us, um, who's coming to our church and why? And why do certain people come and certain people not come? 
And Pastor Michael, I thought about that question all week long. I talked to Carl about it on the way home. I prayed about it. And as I was studying the passage of Cornelius and Peter and their relationship, what stuck out to me was the people that come to our church and why they come here is because we reach out to them. The, the people that come here and are here and stay here is because we reach out to them, because we're in relationship with them, because we love them, because we seek them out. So I just kept thinking, like, who are my Corneliuses? Who are the people that I would love to see in this church? Like, I just would love to see more of these people, more of those people, more of the, and they're not, they're not that many, so how could I? And I began to pray about it, and I just realized that if, we see, if I want to see more people in our church that reflect the socioeconomic diversity of our neighborhood, Logan Square or Bronzeville, the places that we live, and we want to reach out to people um, who are different than us, and offer them a gospel that says that God is the God of, and who accepts all. Are we spending time in their homes? Are we reaching out to them? Are we doing what Cornelius did here? If we want this church to be filled with all the diversity that this, the place that we reside takes and, and the places that we plant take, are we actually building those relationships? Or are we sitting here going, oh, I hope somebody brings them. I hope somebody relates to them. I hope somebody reaches out to them. God is calling us. And I know some of you are moving intentionally to Logan Square in Bronzeville. And, and, and for a lot of you, there are people that have been here a long time. Um, and my question to you is, what are you doing to learn about or to grow in or to set yourself up for building relationships that reflect the Peter Cornelius dynamic? You're moving into Bronzeville. You're moving into Logan Square. You're moving into whatever neighborhood. You're moving in intentionally. I know you. I've talked to you intentionally to build relationships. So what are you willing to give yourself to? Are you willing to enter, enter Gentile homes? Are you willing to sit there and be there on their turf? Are you willing to eat the foods they give you? What are you willing to do? We worship a God who doesn't play favorites, and he wants us to get it. He really wants us to get it. Then we get to the second half of the passage. They gave me 42 verses, so here we go. <laughs> Acts chapter 11. The apostles and brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went to the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and I was in a trance and saw a vision. And I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came to where I was. And I looked into it, and I saw four-footed animals of the earth and wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. And then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And the voices spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent 
uh, from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying, and the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel appear in the house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter, and he will bring you a message through which you and your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as it had come on us, come on us at the beginning. And then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. In this uh, second half, um, we find that God not only calls us to worship and serve a God who does not play favorites, and not only does God want us to get it, but he also wants to use us to help others get it. And so in this passage, we find uh, what's happening to Cornelius. I'm sorry, to Peter. Now, this is the part of the, this chapter is the part of the section for those of you who have been like, yeah, Sandra, get them. Tell them to go into those houses. They're not doing nothing. They're in my community group. They haven't done nothing. They've been here. Get them, Sandra. I know you're out here. I know you. I won't call you out, but you've been sitting here going, oh, yeah, Sandra, you tell them to build those relationships and get outside themselves and to go through. You tell them to face their fears and get them, get them, get them, get them, get them. This part is for you. And this part is also for me. In this passage, we find that God not only wants us to get it, but he wants to use us to help others understand as well. And so in this passage, we find Peter committed to helping the rest of the church understand what God has done. Now, if I was Peter and I came back from such a successful mission that I had seen, I don't know, 30 to 50 people in his household be converted, I would have been like, excuse me? Because the first thing they do is to criticize him, like, great job, Peter, or nice going, Peter, or like, wow, God really showed up, Peter, we're so, no, when Peter shows up, they criticize him. And if I was Peter, I'd have been like, peace out. You guys just don't get it. God showed me. God is on a mission. God is going to be on a mission to the Gentiles. God accepts all people. God wants us to live in unity. God wants us to go across our socioeconomic and racial barriers. God is God of all. And you guys don't even get it. Peace out. And that's how some of us act, right? But Peter shows up instead, and he does two very intriguing things, because he's committed to them understanding. The first thing Peter does is he brings witnesses with him. He was a smart guy. He brings six men with him on this journey to Cornelius' house, and then he brings those same six men to Jerusalem to answer the questions. So when he's telling the story, he goes, well, I got these six guys who are also with me. And they, you know, basically they can tell you if you want to know. And so what Peter does here is he makes a very crafty move. I think he knew. He wasn't like shocked and surprised that they were going to be upset that he went to Cornelius' house. He knew. He was a leader in this megachurch for Pete's sake. 
So he knew. And what he did was he brought what would have, what would have completed kind of the stamp of legal approval. In order to know that something was true legally, you had to have seven witnesses. Peter and the six others. So what Peter did, because he was committed to their understanding, was he brought along people that could testify and make this to be a legally true thing. He was concerned that they would understand. The other thing he does is he explains to them where God was at work by giving them the facts. Peter does not defend himself. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't interpret the facts. He just tells them exactly what God did. He explains to them exactly what they would have needed to hear to know that God was in it. Peter understood, for instance, that the giving of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles would have been really, really important as the sign that the Gentiles were accepted as full members of God's body. They were accepted as full members of the family because the Holy Spirit had come. There had been other people, right, who were seeking God, who even became Christians. And and the Ethiopian uh, eunuch says, you know, like, can I be baptized? You know, and so this question comes up again. Peter asks, is there a reason these people shouldn't be baptized? And they say, you know, they couldn't tell him not to. And so he did it. And so the falling of the Holy Spirit was a sign to them that God was in this. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the first Gentile converts was proof not only that God had met them, but also of their equality with the Jerusalem believers. And I might add to their equality with the very people that were criticizing them, the Jerusalem apostles. Such a strong side was needed for the believers um, because they wouldn't believe it. It was needed because they weren't going to believe it otherwise. So here's how that breaks down. In Acts chapter 2, we have a, another uh, account that's like this, right? Peter preaches. He calls them to, refent, uh, to repentance and faith and belief. They get baptized and the Holy Spirit comes down. Now, at this Pentecost, or this pouring out of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, what happens? Peter preaches. He doesn't even get done with the sermon. Nobody gets baptized, but the Holy Spirit comes down. And everyone was like, even on the Gentiles. So what had happened and the order in which it happened was significant for Peter to communicate to this church because the only way they were going to understand was if God himself put a stamp of approval on that. So he said, I got witnesses, but I want you to know that God himself, before I finish speaking, sent the Holy Spirit. And they began to praise God and speak in tongues. And so Peter was concerned that they would understand. God provided the signs, but Peter had the patience to tell them and explain to them what had happened. And Peter's speech resulted in a Pentecost for the Gentiles, an inclusion, not just that they believed in Jesus and could follow Jesus, but they were actually a part of the same family. It was a new thing being done. A new thing that was communicated or a repeated thing for the Jews that God makes no distinction. And it was so powerful and it was so true and they could tell that God was in it that they just shut up. They were silent, the passage says. They couldn't say a word because they knew that God was in it. 
So my question to you is, what do you think when you encounter who, people who criticize you when you're doing God's work? What do you think and what do you do when people criticize you when you're doing God's work? Do you write them off? Because I want to tell you that if you're doing God's work and if you're following God's ways and if you're actually letting the words of the scripture penetrate your heart and change the way you live, the way that you live will offend people. And it will offend people in the church. There was a movement of Christians who knew that God loved and had a concern for the poor. And so they began this organization. They began to care for the poor and spend time with them. And they spent time with alcoholics and drug abusers and people who were kind of left aside to die and nobody wanted to be with. And they kind of they rallied around them. And they provided clothes for them and food. And um, they provided job training. And they had this awesome organization to be able to meet the needs of these people. And the church criticized them. And they wrote bad things about them. Even people who had a concern and care for the poor said, oh, those people are like way over the top. And they were criticized. But yet today the Salvation Army still serves people all over the world and provides for the needs of the poor and cares for those who no one else cares about. What do you do when people criticize you? Do you write them off or do you stay there in hopes that God will show up in some way? In InterVarsity, the organization that I work with, in, in the year 2000, we had one of our missions convention. And that year, InterVarsity said, God, we see a problem in the church when it comes to mission, and it has to do with our own ethnocentrism and our superior uh, ideas about ourselves and racism. And we want to address the issue of race and ethnicity as it pertains to mission. And InterVarsity, they went after that thing. And we had speakers come and talk about it, and our worship changed drastically that year. And we were pursuing it and pursuing it. And you know what happened? People wrote about us, and they criticized us, and they said, what the heck does racism have to do with world mission? What does racism, ethnicity have to do with world mission? And you know what? Some of you that go to this church that may be sitting in this very room, you old folks that were in college in the year 2000, I remember some of you saying the same things. Why did Urbana talk so much about race? Is like race an issue? What does that have to do with mission? But you're here in these chairs, at this church, in this city, pursuing the very thing that you didn't like nine years ago. God has done a work in you. God has transformed you God is a God who does not show favorites and he wanted you to get it and you are here. Now he calls you to help others get it. Not to write them off. Not to say peace out, forget you. But to come alongside of them and help them understand. You may think to yourself, they just don't get it. I'll just do my own thing. Forget about them. You know, my old church, they're such a bunch of materialists. I mean, you should see the things that they buy and the cars that they drive and everything. I don't want to be around those people. Forget them. I'm just quoting some of you what you've said. Um, my family doesn't even understand race. They're Christians. They're Christian leaders. They're missionaries. They don't even get race. I can't even talk to them. They don't even understand that the church is supposed to be united. Forget, I'm going to do this thing on my own. (laughs) 
Some of us, when we encounter criticism, we decide that we just don't want to bring other people along. And I can understand that. There have been times, oh, if I had some time today, there have been times where I just wanted to do my own thing because it would be so much easier for me to just live in a way that I know God is calling me to than to bring people along who not only don't listen to me, but don't respect me and talk poorly about me. There have been so many times where I have just wanted to say, forget it. And I think what I've learned over the years is that the Lord's call to us, if he has shown us what is good and what the Lord requires of you, is that we would be prophetic and not prickly. Because some of us are just prickly. We know what God is calling us to. We know how we ought to live. We want the church to live like that so bad, but we are so prickly that no one can get close to us. I've been prickly. Some of you have been pricked by me. But in this passage, I see a church leader who says, God's mission is so big. I can't do this on my own. God's mission is so great. It's going to require a community of churches. I need for these people to understand that God was in it and God's going to be in it. And so he spends his time doing something that some of us would think is the biggest waste of time. Change takes time. And sometimes it comes after a long, hard struggle. And it requires a commitment to long-lasting relationships with people who might not like you and people who may not respect you. But my question is, are you willing to be prophetic? Not prickly, not offensive, but prophetic in the places where God has called you, in your community groups, in your families, in this church, at your school. We worship a God who doesn't play favorites. He wants us to get it, and he uses others to help us get it. And he is calling you to bring others along in this journey. As the worship team comes up and as we close, I want to extend some invitations to you guys and ask that you would be prayerful and that we just create a space where we can think a little bit about what God's doing in our hearts and hear the words of the Lord. I don't know all of you. I don't know your stories. I know some of you, but I don't know all of you. And so I don't know what God is doing in you. I don't know if you're the type of person that needed to hear God say today, go into someone else's home. I don't know if you're the type of person today that needed to hear or needed to reflect on the fact that if you have been living on your block for six years and not one person has invited you to their house, why is that? I don't know what you need to hear from the Lord today, but the call that I have for you guys this morning is not a call to vision. It's a call to more action. And the reason I'm giving that call is because I know this church. I've been here since the beginning. I've been here a long time, like way back in the day. And I know that you guys have a heart for this kind of stuff. And I know the preaching that's here every Sunday morning. And I hear it every Sunday, and I hear it every Sunday. And my heart 
for our church is that we will take the things that we want to do and that we ought to do and actually do them. Not when we have time, not when classes are over, not when this season of my life ends, because it never does. <laughs> not when I feel bold enough, not when I have all the not th- dumb things not to say around the teen, you know, like, not then, but now, that God would call us to action now. So my question to you is, what steps have you taken? Think back for some of you how long you've been on this journey. Some of us, honestly, were new to this. But some of us have been walking with this for a long time. And how different are your lives? How different are your friendships? How different are the people that you have in your homes or the homes that you go to? If we were to look at pictures on Facebook of the people that you spend time with, do they reflect what this passage teaches? If you were to pull up your BlackBerry or iCal, would the way that you spend your time all week long reflect and tell people that we serve a God who does not show favorites. We serve a God who does not play favorites and he wants us to get it and he wants us to help other people get it. If you were to pull up your calendar, what would it say about you? I believe that God is raising up a generation who will live this out. I believe that God is raising up a generation of people who will say, people need to know that God accepts all. I believe that God wants to do it in you and I. So what kind of families will you raise? What kind of churches will we plant? What kind of community groups will we have? What is God asking you to do? As we worship through this next song and the last song, I want you to ask God, God, what are you calling me to do this summer? What are you calling me to do over the next month? What specific step are you asking me to take that I would show people that you are a God who does not play favorites and that your gospel is for all people and that you reign over all things? What is God asking you to do? At the end of this passage, Peter has a story to tell. Oh, Peter has a story to tell. He actually tells it again in chapter 15 because it was so good. And my question to you is what story will you have to tell? When you look back five years, 10 years, 15 years from now, and you think back to this date, May 31st, what story will you have to tell? Who will you become? What will your story be? And then for us, new community, what will our story be? What will people say about who we are and what we did and what we proclaimed about who God was? What will be our story? Will we, like Peter in chapter 15, say, we serve a God who shows no favorites? and advocate for those who are coming into the church, what will our story be? God, we thank you so much that you are a God who doesn't play favorites. And Father, we know that some of us are in this room. 
Some of us in this room know more deeply that you are a God who accepts all. And we thank you, God, not only for accepting us, but teaching us to accept others. We praise you, God, for the invitations that we've had to homes and lives of people who have transformed our understanding of who you are and what you're about. And we thank you for the story of Peter and Cornelius. God, we thank you that you had to teach Peter something, that you had to get his attention, God, and teach him through Cornelius that you are a God who accepts all. And Father, in this moment and as we worship, I pray that you would speak, God. We pray that this would not just be a story to entertain us, but that this would be a story that inspires us to change, God, and to proclaim to the world, Jesus, that you reign. That you reign over all people. And God, may this generation and this church, God, be people that say, And live in a way that proclaims that you are the God who accepts people from every nation, tribe, and language.